0: Pandemic, social unrest, the state and the White House. You are listening to The John Petro Show.
1: Well, folks, good afternoon. Right now, it is 106 on this Monday. You're listening to The John DiPietro Show on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. This portion of The John DePetro Show It's brought to you by the Lodge Pub and Eatery. Stop in and see them. 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. Delicious food. Full bar. Large dining area. They're waiting for you at the Lodge Pub and Eatery. So I want to um, just kind of bring you up to speed on some of the news of the day. I just saw something really interesting. And again, it, how much of an advantage is winning the toss in overtime? The current overtime scoring rules, not sudden death, were implemented 2010 playoffs 2012 regular season. Under the current overtime rules, there have been 163 overtime games, including playoffs. Teams that won the coin toss have a record of 86, 67, and 10 in those games, won 52% of the time. Under the current overtime rules, there have been 11 overtime playoff games Teams that won the overtime coin toss have a record of 10 and 1 in those games. Only team to lose were the Saints in 2018, NFC versus the Rams. Seven of those 10 teams scored the sudden death TD on the opening drive. So to come back to that, needs to be addressed. I don't do a sports show, but that is something the Bills should have had a chance. This makes no sense. Under the current overtime rules, teams that won the overtime caught, toy, uh, coin toss, 10 and 1 in those games. I mean, that that's – so the moment that the Chiefs got the ball, I mean, think of that. All right, so Ed Pacheco just got, kicked off his campaign for Congress. Formative video. I'm going to play that. Uh, Angel Tavares is also his um, – uh, honorary chair. Let's see. Uh, Grace Diaz is with him. Um, let me just see some of the other names. Um, let's see if I recognize anybody. Uh, a lot of, He's a party insider. He is definitely a party insider. Grace Diaz, Frank Ferry. I think I remember that name. Um, I don't know a lot of these names. Ed Edmond. uh. Um. All right, well, not that that means a lot. I want to play his video. Raised by a single mother, uh, former state rep, Rhode Island Democrat Party chair, uh, announced he's going for the CD2. 19. He won the youngest elected official in of Rhode Island. He joined the Burville School Committee, went on to represent the people of Burville and Gloucester as state representative. He was also chair of the Rhode Island Democrat Party. I remember him as the head of the Rhode Island Democrat Party. Worst interview, could only do the phone because he would just read talking points to you. He doesn't have any real thoughts. Really slow off the cuff. By the way, he then also got himself a job at Rhode Island College. So it tells you all you need to know. Um, Here are his goals. Establish universal (laughs) pre-K. Yeah, he's going to create good paying jobs fight for social justice every American has the right to vote what are they talking about do I really want to play this do I really want to have to listen to this um I guess so I I, I just think he's you know anyone can run I think he's a little bit of a lightweight um I would not vote for him I'll say that but not that that matters um I think the news of the day is Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott is getting... Um, Hi, oh.
2: I'm Ed Pacheco. I'm running for Congress in Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District.
1: All right, hold on. Stop. You may not know me. Stop the tape. We don't know you. Uh, no tie. At least he's got a blue shirt on. Looks like he's in a living room. A uh, white T-shirt underneath. Just a blue shirt, no jacket. Okay, let's hear it.
2: But over the next few months, I hope to get to know you and earn your vote. I've lived in Rhode Island's second congressional
1: piano music. Now they slide to side view of him talking district
2: my entire life. I was raised by a single mother in my hometown of Barville, a place I called home for almost 30 years. My mother worked as a bus driver to support our family while instilling in me the importance of getting an education and the value of hard work. During our most difficult times, we relied on food stamps and Section 8 housing until we could get back on our feet. I know firsthand the struggles that working families face. I've always felt a sense of duty to public service. When I first ran for elected office as a high school student, I didn't have ties to the political establishment. But I was a fighter with a devout belief that Rhode Islanders can and must be better served by those who aspire to public office.
1: Let me just um, jump in. Now, again, this is this guy from Burville, Ed Pacheco. He's running. Um He agreed to run and be the chairman of the party in exchange for a state job at Rhode Island College. So that's how that works. He's a real political insider.
2: Shortly after graduating from high school, I became one of the youngest people to win elected office in Rhode Island, proudly serving on the Barville School Committee. Later, I had the honor of representing Barville Gloucester as state representative. I like the piano. And promoted our democratic ideals as chairperson of the Rhode Island Democratic Party while helping to elect public servants like my friend, Jim Langevin. Today, my family and I call Warwick our home. My wife, Claudia, and I have two children, Savannah and Ethan. Every day, we worry about the possibility of a late-night email informing us they cannot attend school due to COVID. Uh. We worry about the state and country we will be leaving them. We owe it to our children and their children to ensure a better future. I've spent nearly two decades in service to our state, whether it was in elected office, through my nonprofit work, and more recently, working to strengthen investments in Rhode Island College. And as a product of public schools, I have always believed in a strong and equitable public education system. This is a pivotal moment in our country's history. Every day, it feels as though we are being torn further apart. And the very fabric of our democracy is under attack. It's as though politicians in Washington have forgotten us and are more interested in political gamesmanship than focusing on the people who elected them. Now more than ever, we, you and I, can no longer sit on the sidelines. I believe when we come together as a community, we can lift one another up people and ensure that the American dream is within reach for all redouters. This endeavor is not something I take on lightly. It will require hard work, and an unwavering commitment to ensure our values as Rhode Islanders are represented in Washington. Together, we can work to lift millions of children out of poverty, establish universal pre-K, loan forgiveness to help younger generations escape crushing debt, create good paying jobs by supporting the blue and green economy, what? fight for social justice, uh. and support every American's right to vote. As Rhode Islanders, we face many challenges. Can we stop the, the tape year? for a moment? What what? What what does that even mean?
1: What does that mean even mean? Every Rhode Islander's right to vote. What is that, what does that mean? Who doesn't have the right to vote? That that is just they just make this stuff up. They make this stuff up. I I, I don't. <sighs> every Rhode Island, every American's right to vote. What what are you talking about? Creating jobs. You're going to be the junior congressman to Cicilline and the Democrats are losing power.
2: This campaign is not about me. <laughs> it's about what our country can be and should be.
1: You know what? When they say this campaign isn't about me, <clears throat> it's about us. It's, you know what that is the equivalent of? It's the equivalent of the George Costanza thing on Seinfeld. It's not you. It's me. Listen, it's not, and then George even says, "I listen. What do you mean? It's not you. It's me. I invented. It's not you. It's me. All right. I can't. I I played enough. I just can't. I mean, it's beyond amateur hour. He is. Um, he he is. Again, I. I he's not a bad guy, but he's not a, the winning guy. He's just not. I think a Republican can win it. Now, Jessica De La Cruz, State Senator Jessica, Jessica De La Cruz. She's forty years old. She. I don't think she has, uh, that I'm aware of any baggage. Um, She is definitely someone to watch. She is. She is definitely someone to watch in this race. And now the only, not the only, um, a problem that she has, State Senator Jessica De La Cruz, a problem that she has, I think, one of the problems she has is just where she is we, as far as um, where she she lives in uh, Smithfield. North Smithfield, excuse me, Smithfield. And she, on November 6, 2018, she was elected to the Rhode Island Senate. So she, she won... In November of 18. And then she was just reelected. 23rd district. She's a Republican. Resides in North Smithfield. Uh, and married David. They have three children. Um, so the, the thing about her is. She's definitely new on the scene. And young. I, I'm unaware she has any type of baggage. She was outspoken. I think I've interviewed her once. A couple times. Um, but. In looking at, folks, you deserve to know that that is a winnable seat. The Democrat Party is very concerned about this Langevin seat, as we're calling it, Congressional District 2. Because if a Republican gets in and the Republicans are going to take the House, Kevin McCarthy is going to be the speaker. I know some people don't like that. Guess what? He's better than Nancy Pelosi. McCarthy's going to be the speaker. Republicans are going to take the House. That's why Langevin's leaving. He doesn't feel like being backbenched again. So the, what the Democrat Party is very, very concerned about is the fact that if Republicans can win that seat, which they can. Congressional CD1, where David Cicilline is, is the most condensed, most Democrat district in the entire country and by design. But something to watch is if they redistrict now, they're doing redistricting right now. If they try to redistrict District District 2 to try to include the thing to watch is the East Side of Providence. Maybe Cicilline says, you know what, no one can beat me, so you can take away the East Side of Providence from me, put that in CD2, and I can still win. I don't know. That's where they bury a lot of votes. They do. So, her, her problem Right now, and it may not be, but I like to approach this rationally, folks. And whether people like it or not, it's it's all about numbers. So in Congressional District 2, the most votes are in Providence, but it's not the same as statewide because you don't have the side. So the population of Providence that's in C D Two, it's large. But it's not as large as the way it is statewide. What do I mean by that? Well, in, in, in con- the second congressional district, and this is important, hear me out at 119 on this Monday. There were 96,000 voters in Providence in CD2. Statewide, it's, it's 170, meaning all of Providence. So the next largest district area in CD2 is Warwick with 82,000 There's a world of difference. Cranston Mayor Alan Fung got crushed by Gina Raimondo in Providence because she crushed him on the east side, primarily. Now, but Warwick, 82,000 residents. Cranston, 82,000 residents. So all you have to do is run competitive in Providence if you're a Republican. You don't have to win it. Just don't get totally blown out. Right? Like get 30%. Just run competitive. However, you can make it up in Warwick and Cranston. So I'm going to explain to you, and I want to be very clear. I will remain neutral in this race. Um, I, this, but this is the, the Democrats are worried about not only a Republican winning, but then that could put that person poised to run for Senate. And can you imagine if Rhode Island went back to a Republican senator and one Rhode Island congressman? Folks, it would fundamentally change the state. It would fundamentally change the state. And by the way, for the better. So here's why I believe all due respect to Bob Lance and all due respect to State Senator Jessica de la Cruz. Um, um, Cranston Mayor Alan Fung, he won Cranston as mayor. Running, and I'm talking about running against Ramundo in 2018. Because Bob Lancia, who's a nice band we've had on the program, but he did not win one city or town um, against Jim Langevin. Now, granted, Langevin's not running. But, but Fung, against Ramundo, who was a tough opponent, he won Cranston. He barely lost Warwick. So you could make an argument, and Ramundo was a tough opponent... That Fung and Biden is very unpopular, and the state is tired of one-party rule. Certainly an argument to be made to have someone down in Washington working with the party that's going to be running Congress. So there is a possibility. I'm even going to give providence to the Democrat candidate, whoever that may be. But there's a very good chance if Fung were the nominee, he could win Cranston. He could win Warwick. The next largest area is Coventry. Well, Fung beat Ramundo in Coventry. The next largest district is South Kingstown. Ramundo won South Kingstown. There's a lot of earthy, crunchy uh, progressives down there. The next largest area is West Warwick, thirty-one thousand people. Fung beat Ramundo in West Warwick. The next largest town is Johnston, thirty thousand people. Fung won Johnston. He beat Ramundo in Johnston, and Hillary Clinton visited. Johnson, on her behalf. The next largest area is North Kingstown, twenty-eight thousand people. Ramundo barely won that, but that was Ramundo now. And then Westerly went Ramundo, Boroughville went to Fung, Narragansett barely went to Ramundo, East Greenwich went to Ramundo, Fung won situate Fung won Gloucester, Fung won Hopkinton. Ramondo won Richmond and Charlestown. Fung won West Greenwich and Exeter. And then it's Foster. Fung won Foster. And then uh, Ramondo took uh, Block Island, 1,400 votes. My point is, folks, if you're Jessica De La Cruz, the question is could it let you say? Now, if it was Bob Lancia, male from Cranston, Alan Fung, male, Asian from Cranston, and Jessica De La Cruz, maybe she feels the two men cancel each other out and she gets female vote. possible, but I believe the way this has to be looked at for a Republican primary is I, I Providence is a wild card because I think that the Democrat candidate could take that anyway. But President Trump in 2016 got 46% of the vote. In CD2, 46% of the vote in 2020, you get 43% of the vote. But I think some of that is circumspect. This is a very winnable seat for the right Republican candidate. But what I think with Jessica de la Cruz has to look at, she is running, she says right now. Um, could she win Burville? I don't know. The, the problem I see for her candidacy Are some of the top areas. Providence. Warwick. Cranston. Coventry. South Kingstown. West Warwick. Johnston. North Kingstown. She. I don't know the answer to that. She doesn't. Know a lot of the people in those areas. Doesn't always mean that you're going to. Win it. But could she come out on top. In a primary. Some of the areas where I think she would do well would be Gloucester, Foster, Boroughville, but they don't have that's not big boat totals. That's not big boat totals. Fung as the former mayor of Cranston who left very popular by the way, and that that makes a difference that he, he is he is tough in Warwick, Cranston, Coventry, West Warwick, Johnston, Northgate that's that's tough. Warwick and Cranston. If Fung wins those two, that's that's tough. Not impossible, but tough. All right, folks, this portion of the John DePietro show, again, right now at 125 on this Monday. Um, I'm, I'm less intrigued by some of the Democrats in how this thing is going to shake out with the Republican Party. But... Um, this portion of our program is brought to by Brother's Disposal. Come on, brother, call Brother's Disposal today. Call Brother Roland, now offering weekly trash collection services. But Brother's Disposal, they'll put a purple dumpster in your driveway. You can depend on Brother's Disposal. It's a phone call, 401-688-0517, 401-688-0517. Brothers Disposal, look for them on Facebook. So we're obviously going to monitor the situation with the Ukraine. It's very, very serious. And President Biden, as I mentioned, is, but I, I still can't get over this. So Dr. Scott, that's what it took to get her to leave. That's what it took to get her to leave. Um, she is going to get 46000 a month. That that is this is it's it's robbery. This is robbery. It is, and that's also that's that's what it took to get her to resign. You know, the this is the fact. This you know, as the McKee people were trying to get rid of her, this was the number. Um, that that they agreed on. And why why do the forty six thousand a month consultant to Rhode Island? It's it's a waste. That's not what it is. Um I, I don't <laughs> uh all right, I want to get to some of the the sound though of the Biden presidency folks is just this situation in the Ukraine is very, very serious um let's go to nbc's chuck todd biden is no longer seen as competent and effective let me hear some of this
3: identity if you will but our MB, our new nbc news poll suggests mr biden does need a reset because he's lost his identity a bit he's no longer seen as competent and effective he's no longer seen as a good commander-in-chief or perhaps most damaging as easygoing and likable in fact Just five percent of adults say mr biden has performed better than expected as president one of the many lowest firsts and fewest in our poll and as we kick off our meet the midterms coverage heading into november the nbc news political unit developed what we're calling a midterm meter it's based on previous election cycles it's basically three poll numbers you need to know best i'm going to start with the perhaps the most important number to understand uh, the direction of the midterms, it's job approval here. The president's job approval rating sitting at 43%. If you look at history, history shows that kind of presidential approval rating leads to a shellacking for the party in power. How about the mood of the nation? Well, let me show you this right now. Our wrong track, nation's on the wrong track number, sitting at 72%. Second poll in a row, where we've been over 70%. That's only the third time in our poll's history over 30 years where we've had two tracks that, uh, were that off. That again would put you in shellacking territory.
1: And this is the guy, meaning the president right now, that we have to depend on, that is going to get us through right now. Uh, this is a very, as I said, very serious situation that's taking place with Russia in Ukraine, and and on top of that, President Biden is now talking about sending. 5,000 American troops to the Ukraine to try to get Russia to stand down. Now, folks, as many of you know, many of these, whether it is Vietnam, whether it is Korea, how many of these conflicts that the United States has uh, gotten into, it, it starts with you just send a small number of troops It starts that way, but as we know, it doesn't end that way. So right now, the government has concluded an invasion of Ukraine is imminent. And if that is the case, why are we sending troops there? So I want to hear this is the today show piece
4: families of U.S. diplomats to leave Kiev and warning Americans not to travel to Ukraine or Russia and the president weighing several options for responding if Russia does invade, including increasing military presence in the region. We have complete coverage. We'll start with NBC senior White House correspondent Kelly O'Donnell. Kelly, good morning to you.
5: Good morning, Savannah. Officials tell us the president is looking at plans by air, by sea, and on the ground to fortify NATO allies in Eastern Europe, not send these assets into Ukraine. The mission is to deter Putin and protect our NATO partners. And I'm told conversations have begun with the countries that could receive this U.S. military support, which may be one tangible sign that the president's decision-making process is moving forward. This morning, President Biden weighing a new military operation to counter Vladimir Putin and bolster NATO allies in Europe. At Camp David Saturday, the president was briefed on potential U.S. troop and equipment movements to NATO countries in Eastern Europe. Administration officials say Defense Secretary Austin, on video conference, laid out options for the president to act before or after any Russian invasion of Ukraine. A decision could come within days.
6: We'll continue to build up uh, the defense and deterrence that uh, is necessary.
5: And a new warning. Americans in Ukraine ordered home, including families of embassy staff in Kiev, and a voluntary departure for non-essential workers due to the continued threat of Russian military action.
3: But there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price.
5: Great Britain revealed its discovery of a brewing Russian plot to overthrow the democratically elected president of Ukraine and install a former Ukraine official close to Moscow. Uh. The U.S. called that deeply concerning and put Russia on notice.
0: There is going to be a swift, severe and united response.
5: While Putin has moved more than 100,000 Russian troops to Ukraine's border, the U.S. has delivered $200 million of lethal military aid to Ukraine. And negotiations continue lawmakers say sanctions should not wait we do need to go ahead and impose sanctions on Russia now we need to show them that we mean business and while President Biden considers his military options, today NATO's Secretary General announced that the Alliance of Nations is putting some forces on standby, sending additional ships and fighter jets to Eastern Europe, and would welcome the support of other allies to contribute forces for deterrence. Savannah?
4: All right, Kelly, thank Folks, you. Folks,
1: I want to give credit. Uh, one of our listeners, and actually a guest, has pointed out, um, and again, I, I want to... Just say it's 133. You're listening to the John DePietro show, AM 1380, 99.9 FM. This is a very good observation. Um, what happens if China invades Taiwan at the same time Russia invades the Ukraine? Now, that I, that could be the plan. That could be the plan of the two of them working together. Then what does the United States do? Then what, is this, what does President Biden do? Um, that, that is a major, major problem should that happen. Now, let's see. So the U.S. government has concluded that it's, it's imminent, never mind after President Biden said, well, oh, it's just going to be a small incursion. So just a small incursion. Urge to leave. Here we go.
4: Jeremy Bash, a national security analyst for NBC News. He served as the chief of staff at both the CIA and the Defense Department. Jeremy, good morning to you. Good morning. So we heard overnight that NATO has announced moving military assets to the region. The U.S. is considering doing so. The State Department announces that Americans are urged to leave and families of diplomats are ordered to leave. Is this a significant escalation? How do you read the tea leaves here?
6: Yeah, I think this means that the U.S. government has concluded, Savannah, that an invasion of Ukraine is imminent. You don't Don't order the families of U.S. personnel in the embassy to leave unless you believe they have to get out of harm's way. And we're encouraging all Americans to leave the country. That combined with these military deployments within NATO and additional troops to the region means I believe that the Biden administration has concluded that all efforts to stop Putin at this point have basically failed. There are no off ramps. We have to get our forces postured for potential military conflict.
4: And then how does it play out, Jeremy? What could potentially happen here?
6: Well, look, I think if Putin does something, and I think everybody believes he will, and I think first and foremost, as I said, we got to get our people out of harm's way. We've got to put more forces uh, aligned with our allies in Eastern Europe so that they know that we have their back, because, of course, Ukraine is on the doorstep of NATO. And if Russia takes one step over that line into NATO, then under Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, we're duty-bound to defend those countries, and that means the U.S. and Russia are at war. But I think the next step are sanctions on Russia, and then, of course, we're going to be arming and helping the Ukrainians fight insurgency against Russia. That could be bloody battles in the streets of Ukraine that could go on for months, maybe years.
4: The U.S. has threatened severe sanctions along with NATO, but if Putin has concluded, or or we've concluded that Putin's going to go in, uh, is it too late? I mean, obviously he's doing so in the face of the threat of those sanctions.
6: Well, it may be too late to stop him at this stage, but look, we want to prevent him from escalating once he goes in. And so I think sanctions and cyber efforts are very important to prevent from Putin from going up the escalatory ladder. And those sanctions are going to hurt him. His economy is in decline. His economy is very brittle. But make no mistake, Savannah, those sanctions also could hurt European countries and American companies. And so there are going to be a lot of people coming through Washington asking for exemptions to the sanctions. And over time, those sanctions will arrive.
1: Road.
4: and what about nato's uh, alliance there have been divisions in nato the president openly spoke about those divisions will they stand united and what are the competing considerations there
6: yeah it's a 30-nation alliance so to get everybody on the same page is always a challenge but i think nato is unified under the concept that russia can't force a country to redraw its borders by force. And I can't tell Ukraine that it can't be an ally with the West. And so NATO seems very aligned here, and I think they're going to stand strong. All
4: right, Jeremy Bash, thank you very much. Now, there's some developments
1: on this, by the way. And, folks, it can't be ignored. Uh, I also just saw that President Biden may be getting 50,000 troops ready. But um, this is definitely uh, an alliance between Russia and China will mitigate sanctions. True. Russia should be put ally, should be our ally against China, except they are not. Now, right now, I also saw, I, um, boy, I'd like to hear uh, Ed Pacheco weigh in on what he thinks we should do with Ukraine. He's announcing for Congress. (coughs) Folks, it also just shows you, I mean, all this stuff of like, you know, we need to make sure every American can vote. What are you talking about? So Speaker Pelosi has asked the White House for a bipartisan briefing for all members on Russia. This uh, situation is, is developing rapidly, and and none of it good. Um, none of it good, as, as a matter of fact. And I this, see, everything else, though, everything else goes to the side. When you think about some of the things that we've had to listen to with some of these proposals, right, um, I still can't get over Dr. Scott. Is holding up. That's what it took. Dr. Scott is going to receive 46000 a month from the state of Rhode Island. 46000 a month for three months. Now, it says she's going to be a consultant. I, I just read it as that's the cost. Governor McKee wanted to get rid of her, and that was the price. That was the price. And I want to credit Channel 12, got a hold of the transition service agreement, into an agreement. Dr. Nicole Alexander Scott. Uh, Mr. Two Significance, um, public health concerns, blah, blah, blah. So as a result of that, from March 1st through the end of May. So March, April, May, Rhode Island will pay her for three months 46000 a month for three months. So she walks away Memorial Day weekend with one hundred thirty-eight grand. Wow. Hmm. And there's her signature and there's Rhode Island Governor Dan McKee signature. That she signed it on the 13th. He signed it on the 14th. It's a termination agreement. A consultant may terminate this agreement at any time before the three months term upon written notice to the state. State may terminate the agreement any time before its three month term by buying out any remaining monthly payments. So she could end it. And say, you know what, I'm not going to take the rest of the money. The state, if they say after 1 month, okay, you're done, they have to give her the 138k. So that's what and I want to be very clear with you. So that that's what it that's what it took. That's what it took to get her to resign. Because it was very clear. So the um the McKee people wanted Dr. Scott to leave. She didn't want to leave. And this is suddenly the cost of getting her to leave. And then you start to wonder this whole business of we want to thank her for our service. And she was so fantastic. And seeing it through, that's, that's an element of kind of holding us up a little bit. She knew she had Governor McKee over a barrel. I hope she runs let her run for that. And the media is loving this. Now, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not fully on board believing that she's running, but I think she's enjoying uh, the attention. And then maybe some people are going to reach out to her and ask her, you know, what would it take? And maybe I'll give you this or that if you'll not run. I think she's just enjoying the attention. I, I believe she didn't want to leave, but suddenly Governor McKee said, I'll tell you what. If you resign, we'll give you 138000 and then it was like deal. And I have heard that she started at 200000 or maybe even 250000 and then it becomes a negotiation. But I think, and I'll tell you why I think that's obscene, is, is there anyone listening right now? At one forty-one on this Monday, January twenty-fourth. Say so anyone that thinks she's responsible for what happened in November, she's responsible. What happened in October, October, November, December? She is. Biden administration is sending in emergency medical troops from the federal government. She's on the hold the hook for that. She's the one responsible for an island hospital. She's the director of Department of Health. She's responsible for Kent Hospital. I, I am missing something with all of this cheering up and down. If Dr. Scott believes, is she well known? Yes, but I don't think she's popular. Alexander Scott make 46000 a month as a consultant in Rhode Island. I think that is gouging. I think it's gouging. I think it also shows she's upset. She doesn't care so much what people think. She has, I believe, Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott, my opinion, she has an inflated sense of herself. It is true. All these people sing her praises. It is true. She would be on television every day with Governor Raimondo. Since March of 2020, Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott every day would be on television as everyone in the state would huddle around and watch her on TV, TV giving COVID updates with Doctor Raimondo, excuse me, with Governor Raimondo. Is she recognizable? She's also tall, and she's a person of color. Um, so she's identifiable, but there's a difference between people that say, "Boy, I think she's terrific," right? There's a big difference between is Nancy Pelosi identifiable? Yes. Is Nancy Pelosi popular in her district with Democrats, but certainly not with the general population? People know who she is, right? Um, But I wouldn't equate that to favorability. I think if, if Dr. Nicole Alexander Scott is thinking of running for Congress, let her play it out. You know who else is? Omar Ba, from refugee journalist to candidate for the U.S. House. You know, I I don't know this individual. I want to see, let him find out firsthand what an inside club the Rhode Island Democrat Party is. These people that talk about undermining democracy, undermining democracy, they're the ones that have decided they want, they want to pick who it is that is the heir to the throne successor to the Lantern seat. But I, I want to repeat, folks, if, if we get dragged into, and I, that, that is a really good point, that if, if we're distracted by Russia-Ukraine, what does China do with Taiwan? That's, that is really problematic. And Jen Psaki at the White House is holding a briefing right now. This is... um, I'm going to dip into it a little bit because it is... This is a very serious situation that President Biden, that the United States is in right now. And I want to just dip into the White House press briefing. Um, Let me hear this.
7: My colleague... uh John Kirby would have more of an update on where the process is at this point in time. So he'll make it a John Kirby will make an announcement. He's made a no, I think he will make, he will provide an update on where things stand on those discussions.
5: Okay. So last week, President Biden at the press conference said that the U.S. would fortify NATO allies, but said it was dependent on an invasion, saying that he would send more troops to Poland, Romania if Ukraine, if Putin did invade Ukraine. So the fact that he's considering this now and having these discussions with Pentagon leaders over the weekend, does that suggest that
7: he believes an invasion is imminent? We've never actually ruled out uh, providing additional support, uh, additional support uh, assistance uh, to eastern flank countries in advance of any invasion. And those discussions with them have been ongoing, uh, and certainly that's been part of our contingency planning. I guess the question is, it does appear to be a shift in his thinking and his attitude toward it. Is that characterize it? I wouldn't characterize it that way. Uh, we have spoken to the fact that, um, and we've put out a lot of information about uh, our view uh, of the preparations being made by President Putin and the Russians. Uh, while we can't get into the mind uh, of President Putin, we are seeing the preparations that they're making at the border. We have been very clear, and the President has been direct, that military action by Russia could come at any, one, at any time. He said that last week as well. So uh, we have been in conversations and discussions. Discussions with eastern flank countries. Obviously, our Secretary of State just returned from a trip to Europe as well, and he was part of the discussions this weekend, too. Uh, and part of that has been contingency planning and discussing what their needs have been.
4: My last question is, today
5: the President has this call with European leaders. Mm-hmm. Several of them are on this. The UK,
7: France, Germany, Italy, Poland, NATO, the European Council. Why is Ukraine not on that call though well, we have a range of conversations with Ukrainians. Obviously, our Secretary of State met with them last week, and they will be a part of many conversations moving forward. As I noted a little bit earlier, part of this is a discussion about deterrence and defense efforts, diplomacy, but certainly they will be a part of many conversations, as they have been from the beginning. So,
8: Go ahead. Um, So what happened then in the last few days that prompted the Pentagon to present specific potential troops deployment? to the president,
7: but put another way, why now? They will be a part of many conversations moving forward. As I noted a little bit earlier, part of this is a discussion Folks, this is the
1: White House press briefing, diplomats diplomats Jen Psaki, on the John DePito will be show. But they part of many
7: conversations as they have been from the beginning. Um, so what happened then in the last few days that prompted the Pentagon to present
8: specific potential troop deployments to the president? Put another way, why now?
7: Well, I wouldn't say we're characterizing it exactly that way. The president has said, said last week, and we also said that uh, as we've been watching uh, the preparations of President Putin and the Russians, that they were prepared at any moment to take military action. Uh, We've also been in ongoing discussions from our Secretary of State to members of our national security team with our eastern flank partners uh, about what their needs are uh, and what uh, security uh, concerns they have. So uh, I wouldn't say it's a response to an abrupt moment. It's a part of an ongoing contingency planning process and discussion.
8: After this weekend, is he more or less concerned about the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine?
7: Well, he said last week that military action by Russia could come at any time. Uh, that w- that remains his point of view.
8: And um, there's been clamoring in this town and over in Ukraine for a U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Where, where do things stand on appointing somebody?
7: Certainly understand that. I don't have any update on the status at this point in time.
8: The Ukrainian Foreign Ministry said the decision to draw down the U.S. presence in Kiev at the embassy. Was, quote, premature and a manifestation of excess caution. Is this potentially in the afterglow of what happened in Afghanistan, concerned for that, or is there something else? more specific,
7: prompting people on it. Well I would say that we, uh, our State Department, regularly reviews and assesses uh, what steps need to be taken for the security of our personnel. Uh, I would note that the travel advisory was already at level four since back in October. We've also been closely consulting and keeping Ukrainians abreast. I would say this is more akin to what we, the steps we took in Ethiopia and Kazakhstan uh, than any other country or conflict.
8: Morning, Ukraine. One other the House Speaker today has requested a bipartisan all members briefing on the situation in Ukraine on the White House. Is that something you guys plan to uh, fulfill? Uh,
7: we have been in close consultation with members and leadership from the beginning. I don't have any update on this specifically, but uh, that's been our objective and, and how we have proceeded. So I'm sure we are working to meet the requests and needs of members. And
8: based on some news reports, looks as like- if at least Jake Sullivan, maybe others, are talking to senior lawmakers about this.
7: On a fairly- and we have been for weeks.
8: Mm-hmm. Uh, on another subject, uh, another violent weekend across the country. Uh, there was a shooting in New York. There was a shooting here in D.C. of a police officer. There have been reports of a possible uh, executive actions that the president might be able to take in the realm of police reform or police policy. Where do things stand on that?
7: Well, uh, let me, can I, may I address this weekend first and I will come around to your question, but I think you had a few in there, important ones to address. Uh, The events of this weekend are a reminder uh, that law enforcement officers head into harm's way every single day. They and their families make it. An extraordinary sacrifice uh, for their communities. Uh, The president is never going to be satisfied or complacent when officers are being gunned down or when Americans have to worry about whether they can safely ride the subway or bus or even be at work. We've seen a surge in crime. Obviously, this weekend is a glaring example of that, especially gun violence over the last two years. And the president has been aggressive in using the tools at our disposal to combat that. That's why he took early action on gun gun, uh, violence last spring, and it's why he rolled out a comprehensive plan to combat crime last summer. He also believes, as many Americans do, uh, that we can and must have a criminal justice system that both protects public safety and upholds our founding ideals of equal treatment under law. That's why uh, he not only has implemented this comprehensive plan to combat crime, but why he is continuing to advocate for reforms to our policing system. He thinks that we can do both, but I don't have an update on any timings for next step on that.
0: Go ahead. Thanks, First on the markets, does the President think it's a big deal that today the Dow Jones is down uh, at one point more than 1,100 points?
7: Well to start with uh, we focus on the trends in the economy not any one day and any single indicator unlike his predecessor the president does not look at the stock market as a means by which to judge the economy i would note uh, that the market is up around 15 percent compared to when president biden took office uh, but our measure of success is really how real working families are doing whether they are, have a little breathing room whether they have a job that delivers some dignity and a paycheck that can support they can support a family on and we've seen a great deal of progress in on that front.
0: Thank you. On schools in Virginia, seven districts representing 350,000 students are suing the state. They're hoping to get a strict mask mandate for students that has been rolled back by the new governor reinstated. So who does the president think knows best for students,
7: school board members or parents? Well, the the, the president believes that uh, public health officials have the best guidance on what we can all do to protect ourselves, including teachers, administrators, and students. It's always been up to local school districts to determine how they're going to approach, uh, what implementation measures they're going to put in place. But here's what we know from public health officials who are the experts on a pandemic. Uh, Studies show that masks reduce transmissions in school. They are a proven tool that helps keep students and teachers safe from COVID and they can thus help keep schools open yeah. and safe. Oh, and again, sure we know it works and we need every leader to focus on using the tactics yeah. we know work to keep our students safe and our schools open. I know you mentioned Virginia, but in Texas uh, the state is fighting a critical public health measure to protect our children and keep our schools safely open for Head Start communities. Uh, ones that uh, a, a provision that is requiring masks to keep students and keep uh, communities safe. They're fighting against that. Why is that. I think that has uh, that has more to do with politics than it does with public health.
0: But right now in Virginia, the law is, now that there's a new governor, that students should not have to wear masks if their parents say that they don't think they need to wear masks. So if a parent wants to send their, school, uh, their kid to school with no should that child be allowed to go to school and be
7: in class again uh we're what we're advising school districts on is to abide by public health guidelines and follow public health guidelines and it's about keeping an entire community safe and those are the decisions that are being uh, that people should focus on making
0: just so that it's crystal clear for anybody watching you guys think that ultimately in this conflict between school board members and parents the school board members have
7: more of a say in what what is actually not what i said i think everybody should abide by public health guidelines not just to keep their own kids safe but keep their their school community safe whether it's teachers classmates uh, administrators others in schools
0: okay on crime to follow up on what ed was asking about Mm -hmm. would you agree that the most important job for any president is to keep americans safe
7: I would agree. So
0: you said that the president's never satisfied if people don't feel safe. Does he know that after a year in office, people do not feel safe? Good question.
7: Well, Peter, I think if we look at the facts here, we've seen a surge of crime over the last two years. Would you agree with that? No. So, what are you attributing the in crime to then? Well, I think we should be responsible in how we're reporting to the public what the what the what the uh, roles are, what the reasons for the surge in crime. Gun violence is a huge reason for the surge in crime. Uh, underfunding of pol- some police departments and their need for additional resources—something the president has advocated for consistently through the course of his career—that's something we know we need to take action on and it is absolutely true that he will not be satisfied uh, or complacent when officers are being gunned down or when americans have to worry about whether they can safely ride the subway or bus that should not be a political issue he's somebody who has had a long career of many decades of fighting for uh funding for police departments for local communities in order to reduce crime but he's been
0: here in office for more than a year and the murder rate is nearing a 25-year high, so why don't we see and hear more from the president about this? We hear all the time about things that you guys are doing to fight a pandemic because that's a risk to American people. rising murder rate is a risk to American people too, right?
7: And he has spoken to crime, but I think what people are most uh, uh, focused on as they should be are what actions he has taken. He has unveiled a strategy to focus federal law enforcement resources on combating violent crime, offered unprecedented levels of funding through the Rescue Plan for cities and states to put more cops on the beat and invest in uh, proven community anti-violence programs, something every Republican voted against. The Department of Justice has announced 139 million dollars in grants to cities for community policing which will put one thousand more officers on the streets. He's also proposed doubling those grants and uh, he's for an additional seven hundred and fifty million dollars for federal law enforcement. White House he's press announced briefing. a zero tolerance policy for gun dealers uh, who sell we are
1: getting closer uh, to World War illegal
7: Three guns and we've launched gun uh, trafficking strike forces in New York and cities across the country. Uh, Actions <coughs> are important here and he has a long record of
0: them. But does the president think that any of that is working?
7: The president thinks you should have a plan to address crime and gun violence. He has one, and we look forward to working with people who support that effort.
0: But as the murder rate nears a 25-year high, would he consider maybe trying something different?
7: trying something other than uh, supporting a massive plus-up in funding from his predecessor, cracking down on gun trafficking and gun violence, which is a major driver of the violence we've seen across the country, working to support community policing programs and police departments across the country. I think most people who want to fight crime would agree that's the right approach. Go ahead. Go ahead,
6: Justin. Thanks, Jen. Um, I know uh, Kirby's breaking later, but just for the finer point, do you have any information about how many troops are under consideration? What the time frame for the president's position are? What sort of logistical details are
7: possible? I don't have any more details from here, other than to convey that we're in close consultation with Eastern Flank countries about their security needs. And again, we've always said we would support them. Uh, we've never said that, uh, that 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 an invasion would be a prerequisite for that. Do
0: you expect the written response that you're putting together to include any requests or demands from the U.S. side, including?
7: anything to preview in terms of what a written proposal would be i would just note because we've talked about this a bit that written proposals have been the basis of basically every agreement we've ever had with the russians in many countries around the world they're a standard part of diplomacy and they're they're a format again, for providing areas where
1: it's john DePietro. uh that is jen saki uh, with the uh, white house all right white house press briefing listen it's 159 Coming up, you're going to hear the 2 o'clock news and then the John Dion program. We're back on the radio tomorrow at 11. I will be doing a Facebook Live later. Uh, stay, stand by. Stay tuned for the 2 o'clock news and, again, an update as the situation with Russia and the Ukraine.
6: WNRI, one socket.
1: WNRI.